Amen. Uh, it's in the air. It's on the surface of the earth. It's under the earth. In fact, 70% uh, of the earth is covered in it. 60% of your body is made up of it. It comes in form of liquid, solid, vapor. Each molecule has two hydrogens and one oxygen. It has no smell or taste. You can't go for seven days without it. What am I talking about? I'm talking about water. That song that we just sang, written by our own Jameson Evenden. Isn't that an awesome song? About, about water. Uh, let's, uh, let's take our seats. Let's open up our Bibles to John chapter 4. We're going to be looking at a discussion that Jesus had with a woman from Samaria about water. If you don't have a Bible, our ushers can help you out with that right now. They're coming up and down the aisle uh, with extra Bibles uh, for people. And really the core of this conversation, what Jesus is really getting at, is as, as vital as water is for our physical life, there is something that is equally vital for our spiritual life. Water is so ubiquitous, it, it, it's, it's everywhere, that we so often just take it for granted. We assume that there will always be water, and, and we don't even notice how much water we use for hydration and for hygiene, and, 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 and it's the ultimate solvent. It, it, it breaks down so many, so many other things, and we use it all of the time. It's so vitally necessary, and in John chapter 4, Jesus is going to talk about something that is vital, that is absolutely necessary, something that you cannot live with out and it all centers around this conversation that he has with this woman from uh, Samaria. We're going to look at uh, three different uh, things that Jesus uh, wants to make clear about himself in his conversation uh, with this uh, woman. So I'm going to uh, pray right now that God would lead us and guide us and, uh, and then we're going to tackle 42 verses of New Testament narrative together. All right, everyone on board for that? So that's why we need to pray. And so let's, uh, let's bow our heads together. Lord, we love you. We thank you, God. It's been awesome to come together as the people of God and sing the praises of God and the power of the Spirit of God. Your presence is here, and we thank you for that. And we pray that you would be with us as we open your word uh, right now. Lead us and guide us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 4, verse 1 says that, uh, now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and parted, departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And so Jesus, wearied as he was from the journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. The Gospel of John tells us a lot about the deity of Christ, that he is in fact fully God, but the Gospel of John also tells us about the humanity of Christ. He was also fully human. And he's making this journey from Judea um, to Galilee. He's got to go through a place called uh, Samaria, and he's weary because he's a human being with a physical body. He is wearied by the journey, and he stops at this well in a town called a Sychar. Now, there's some, there's some history 
here. Jacob bought this land in Genesis chapter 33. He promised it to his long-lost son Joseph when they were reunited in, in Genesis 48. In Exodus chapter 13, when the Israelites were, were leaving Egypt to go to the promised land, they took with them Joseph's bones. And they carried his bones all through the wilderness for 40 years And then in Joshua 24, when they arrive in the promised land, at this site in Shechem, just just about, I'm, I'm told, just a few hundred yards away from this well is Joseph's tomb, where his bones were buried. And so there's some history here. He sits down at this well at the sixth hour. Now the way that they told time in the ancient Near East is there was sort of 12 hours in a day between sunrise at 6 a.m. and sunset at 6 p.m., and, and from sunrise, you just started counting hours. So from 6 a.m., 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 6 hours would be 12 noon. So this is happening at lunchtime. And that's why when, when we get to uh, verse 7, it says, a, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone into the city to buy food. Because it's lunchtime. They went down to the, the real Samaritan superstore uh, to, you know, get some pita bread or, or, or something like that. And Jesus asked this woman for a drink. Here, here's the, the first thing I, I want you to see is that uh, Jesus is the one who satisfies our thirst. Jesus is the one who satisfies our thirst. Now, uh, just full disclosure right now. Uh, Pastor Marvin preached on this passage uh, about a year ago. John chapter 4 did a terrific job. I loved his outline, and I am just unashamedly stealing his excellent outline today, okay? It's not plagiarism if it's your friend. And so, uh, so Jesus satisfies. This whole conversation hinges on Jesus' question, asking this woman for a drink. But she's quite shocked that he would ask her for a drink. In verse 9, The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. You see, there's there's some, some history about this place near the well. There's some history between the Samaritan people and Jesus, who was a Jewish. And so let me, let me sort of unpack, explain a little bit of the background. I want you to turn in your Old Testament to the book of, of 1 Kings. Let's hear pages uh, turning or fingers swiping or whatever you're doing uh, to read God's word today to 1 Kings chapter 12. 1 Kings chapter 12. And look up here at the screen for a minute. You've got, this is the Davidic dynasty, the sons of David that were ruling over the people of Israel. That's the the rough sketch of the promised land uh, there on the right of the diagram. It started off with David. This is the rock star king, right? He's writing psalms and he's slaying giants and he's this incredible king. And then he has this son Solomon who also got off to a great start. So wealthy, so wise, such a great administrator. But, But Solomon began to turn towards idols, didn't he? And Solomon began to oppress the very people that he was called to lead. And then when Solomon dies, his son Rehoboam takes over for him. So at the end of of, uh, 1 Kings chapter 11, uh, Solomon dies. And in chapter 12 it says, Rehoboam went to Shechem 
for all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. As soon as Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard of it, for he was still in Egypt, where he had fled from King Solomon. So let's get Jeroboam into the mix here. Jeroboam was kind of like the union rep for all of the workers during the days of Solomon. And he tried to stand up against Solomon. And, but Solomon was one of those leaders who said, hey, listen, if you're going to try to challenge me, then I'm just going to kill you. And there was a bounty on, on Jeroboam's head. So he fled to Egypt. But when he finds out that Solomon is dead, he comes back. He's the union leader. He's going to do some collective bargaining right now. And so they, 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 they come back, verse 3, they sent and called him and Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel came and said to Rehoboam, your father made our yoke heavy. Now therefore lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us and we will serve you. He said to them, go away for three days, then come again to me. So the people went away. And he responds in verse 13, the king answered the people harshly. And this is a sermon in and of itself. Forsaking the counsel of the old men had given him and spoke to them according to the counsel of the young men, saying, my father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. People respond, look down at verse 16. When all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, what portion do we have in David? For we have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel. Look now to your own house, David. So the rest of the tribes of Israel say, forget you, David. Forget you, tribe of Judah. We're going to go and do our own thing. And they select a new king. Verse 20. When all Israel heard that Jeroboam had returned, they sent and called him to the assembly and made him king over Israel. So what we end up with, we've got two countries now. Israel... All the northern tribes take on the name Israel, Judah to the south. Rehoboam is ruling over the south. Jeroboam is ruling over the north. But notice that there's a temple in Judah. That's what Jerusalem is in Judah. Three times a year the Bible commanded that people needed to leave their homes and go and worship at the temple in Jerusalem. And this is on Jeroboam's mind. And look at verse 26 with me. Verse 26, Jeroboam said in his heart, now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple to the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So he's afraid that all this travel into into Judah is going to make the people turn on him eventually. So he makes a decision out of fear. How many good decisions have you made out of fear? Not very many. This is a really bad decision that he makes. Verse 28. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. He said to the people, You have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Now, if you've read the Old Testament, you know that like making a golden calf, let alone two golden calves, is a really bad idea. And so Israel starts worshipping idols. Eventually, in chapter 16, a a king named Omri uh, has a capital city, names it Samaria, so eventually Israel becomes also known as Samaria. Those two names get used interchangeably. Now turn to 2 Kings chapter 17. 
2 Kings chapter 17, just one more stop before we get back to John 4. This is helping us understand the historical, religious, political background as far as why Jews and Samaritans did not get along. Look at chapter 17, verse 22. I think, uh, yeah, verse 22. The people of Israel walked in all the sins that Jeroboam did. What was the sin that Jeroboam did? Making an idol, making a golden calf. He walked in all the sins that Jeroboam did. They did not depart from them for years, for centuries. Prophets like Elijah and Elisha, they're performing miracles, trying to convince the people, return to the Lord. But then all of these evil and wicked people, evil kings like Ahab, evil queens like Jezebel, this is all Samaria. This is all the northern kingdom. Verse 23, until the Lord removed Israel out of his sight as he had spoken by all his servants, the prophets. So Israel was exiled from their own land to Assyria until this day. So they get exiled to Assyria. The people of Samaria get exiled to Assyria. Then look at verse 24. And the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kutha, Ava, Hamath, and Serevaim. I've never pronounced those before in my life. Just make it up as I go along. And place them in the cities of Samaria instead of the people of Israel. And they took possession of, possession of Samaria and lived in its cities. So people of Israel out, the majority of them. A whole bunch of new people get forced to move there by the king of Assyria. Eventually the king of Assyria actually mandates that some of the people of Israel move back. Intermarriage happens between these two groups of people. Eventually, the people of Judah, they get exiled to Babylon as well, but then they eventually return 70 years later, and Ezra and Nehemiah try to rebuild the wall and rebuild the temple. Who were the main opponents to try to stop the temple and the wall from being rebuilt? The Samaritans. So now we go back to John chapter 4, and that little parentheses for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Do you understand now why? There's a history there. There's political reasons for why Jewish people didn't associate with Samaritans. There's religious reasons. They worshipped idols. There's racist reasons. They intermarried with other nations. And, and the Jews thought that their race was a more pure race. All of these reasons. And then notice she also says, why do you speak to me? A woman. You can see why she's so incredulous. She's so shocked. You're speaking to me, a woman of Samaria. See, in the culture at the time, men did not speak to women in public ever. You see, notice how the love of Jesus just breaks through all these human-made barriers. And it, what was true on that day at noon by a well is true today. All of these walls and these barriers that try to divide us, Jesus just breaks through them. He just bulldozes through all of these walls because he loves this person. And our love for Christ and our love for our neighbor should similarly break through those walls to, to overcome what, whatever may be dividing us from from another human being so that we can bring to them the love of Jesus Christ. Jesus satisfies our thirst. He comes to this woman from Samaria. He asks her for a drink. Look at verse 10. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God 
And who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. You're not going to scoop this up with your hands, mister. Where do, you, where do you get that living water? See, she's still thinking in physical terms. Jesus, remember, he's thinking, he's thinking about something that we need spiritually as much as we need water physically. She says, are you greater than, than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus says that he wants to give water so that we would never be thirsty again. Again, not physically thirsty for water. But listen, all of us have thirsts. All of us have desires. All of us have longings. And we, we wrongly try to satisfy our thirst or our longing with uh, success or with pleasure or with popularity or with possessions. Whatever it may be, we run after these things. But we, no matter how successful we are or how much we fail in getting those things, the result is still the same. We're still thirsty. But Jesus says, I've come to give you something that will make you never thirst again. It's something that is internal. He says it's a, it's a well that will spring up. It's internal and it's also eternal. It will spring up to eternal life. You see, there is something that every single human being longs for, whether they know it or not. We're trying to fill it with all of these other things. But but the only thing that can quench that thirst, that longing, that desire deep inside each and every one of us is a relationship with the living God. And that's what Jesus came to give, to satisfy our thirst. That's where we get purpose. That's where we get meaning. That's where we experience love. That's where we experience all of these things in a relationship with God. That is the thirst that Jesus has come to satisfy. She's pretty eager to get this water. At the end of verse 15, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. She didn't want to have to come to that place to draw water. There's, there's a reason for that. Make, make note of this secondly, that Jesus saves us from our sins. Jesus saves us from our sins. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. This woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. 
God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is, who is called Christ. When, when he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Jesus tells the woman, go, go, go get your husband. She says, I, I have no husband. And she says, well, yeah, that's technically true. And then, you see, we were, we, were, we were shown the humanity of Christ in that he was weary at the well. But now we're shown the divinity of Christ in that he knows everything about this woman. She was indeed speaking the truth. She had no husband because the person that she was living with was not her husband. But she had had five husbands uh, previously. You see, this woman was carrying something to the well every day besides her water jar. She was carrying guilt and shame and the fear of rejection and feelings like worthless and dirty and used. She, she, she carried that baggage with her everywhere she went. And Jesus very lovingly but clearly and assertively goes where, where things are going to hurt for her, where things are going to get quite uncomfortable. Now often we just, we assume that this woman was immoral. I mean, five different husbands? I mean, was she just some sort of serial adulterer? Did she just treat marriage? But listen, that doesn't say how she ended up divorced five times. We shouldn't jump to conclusions just based on on. on what we see, I mean, she could have been divorced. Maybe she struggled with infertility. And, and these five husbands, they all wanted an heir to, to pass on the family name. And she wasn't able to produce that. So she got kicked to the curb and, and divorced. Maybe, maybe it was a tragic situation where some of them died. Some of them there was an infertility situation. Maybe there was adultery in one or two of the cases on her part or on his part. We don't know what the story is. Listen, whether she was guilty of the sin or whether she had been sinned against, she still carried an element of shame. You see, sin ruins everything. Whether we are the ones who have sinned or we are the ones who have been sinned against, it causes shame to cover both parties. But Jesus came to save us from our sins. Just think about this woman's life. Married five different times. Maybe she was trying to drink from the well. She was trying to satisfy her thirst with relationship. If I could only find the right man. And listen, just think. Think five different times. Standing and making a promise. Five different times. The hope and the expectation. This time it's going to be different. And then five different times having those hopes smashed. Not once, not twice, not three or four, five times. Whatever happened, happened to her. This conversation is happening at the sixth hour, which is, which is 12 noon. The sun is as high as it can be in the sky. This is the time where no one else would be getting water from a well. You went first thing in the morning. You went sort of at twilight when it's cooler out. Why is she going at noon? Well, she's going at noon because she's tired. 
of seeing cut-eyed from people. She's tired of hearing people whisper behind her back. She's tired of the disingenuous smiles from the people who are gossiping about her. She's done with people. She doesn't want to be around them. She's just trying to, just trying to, to close herself in. She's trying to set up walls herself. And Jesus, the love of Jesus breaks down barriers. Now, notice here, some of you, you might, have, you might not have received sort of clear teaching about what marriage means or what marriage is. Some of you look at the way, you know, marriage is, is treated in our culture and our society today, and you wonder, you know, what is the point? If people get divorced, if she's going to get divorced five times, I mean, clearly God doesn't view those marriages as, as legitimate. No, Jesus says, you have had five husbands. Notice the the reverence and the sobriety with which he talked, each and every single one of those marriages was a legitimate marriage to Jesus. And well, maybe she thought, well, you know what? I'm not going to make a covenant promise. I'm not going to have a big ceremony or anything like that. We're just going to be we're just going to be married in God's eyes. Well, is she married in God's eyes? Look at what Jesus says: the man you are with right now is not your husband. And maybe you're here right now. Maybe you've been coming to the church for a long time. We haven't taught on marriage in a while. And maybe you are living common law with someone. Maybe you've never really thought about it. Listen, look at what Jesus says right here. The person that you're living with is not your, there is no married in God's eyes. Marriage is a covenant relationship. A covenant is because I love you now, I promise to love you in the future. That's the essence of what a covenant is. It is a promise of future love. Better, worse, rich or poor, sickness and health. It is a promise of future love. And God takes that very, very seriously. Why does he take that very seriously? He takes marriage as a promise of future love very seriously because that's the way that God loves us. God has... Go, go all the way through the Bible. He's continually making covenants. He's making, a, he's saying, I love you, and because of that, I promise to love you in the future. It is a promise of future love. And, and yes, divorce is rampant in our culture. And yes, the whole definition of marriage is being called into question. But Jesus looks at this woman and says, the woman, the man you're with right now is not your husband. We need to make sure that we aren't going along with our culture and devaluing the importance of covenant marriage. And here's the amazing thing. Some of you are here today and you're feeling a little bit uncomfortable because there's something in your past or maybe even something in your present that's coming up. Listen, Jesus told this woman these things. He knew all of these things. He knew all of these things before he started the conversation. He knew what she was doing and what she had done, but that didn't cause him to reject her. You see, some of us are afraid, oh, if I really, if I really laid my cards on the table, if I really said who I was, then I'll, then I'll be rejected. I'll be rejected by the church. I'll be rejected by God. No. If the church is trying to be like Jesus, then there will not be rejection. There will be clarity. There will be truth. But there will not be rejection. 
It's also really important here that we just stop and think about what's been happening so far in the Gospel of John, and where is this conversation taking place? It's happening at a well. Historically speaking, all of the great men of God in the Bible met their wives at wells. Genesis chapter 24, verse 11, Abraham's servant goes to, to find a wife for Isaac, and he meets Rebekah at a well. And, and then Genesis 29, Jacob is running for his life. He stops at a well, and who shows up? Rachel. He meets his wife at a well. Then Moses, running for his life, in Midian, stops at a well, and that's where he meets Zipporah. Great men of God meet their wives at a well. I hear a young adult ministry idea coming up, you know. Now, I don't expect you to remember everything from last week's sermon in John chapter 3, but there should be an image of who Jesus is echoing through our ears as John chapter 3 comes to a close and John chapter 4 begins. Remember we had a bunch of people up here standing to, to talk about a ceremony? John had just declared at the end of John chapter 3, he declared that Jesus was what? He was the bridegroom. Jesus is the bridegroom, the groom, the one who has the bride. Now he's at a well, and look at the kind of woman that Jesus is choosing to make a covenant promise to, a promise of future love, a woman with a sketchy at best, sinful at worst sexual history, a woman who's carrying around with her shame and guilt a woman who is a social outcast. And this is the one. This is the one who makes up all of us who are called the bride of Christ. This is the kind of love that Christ wants to give. This is the kind of person that Christ wants to save from sin. Do you follow? And so listen, if you're here today and you completely identify with this Samaritan woman, you ought to feel absolutely right at home at Harvest Bible Chapel. And if we are a church that does not make people like that, people who are trying to figure out marriage in their past or marriage in their present or their current living situation or their sexual, whatever it be, if we are not a place that can take people who are in a situation like hers and say, you belong here and God's love reaches to you. And in fact, you're no different than me and than the rest of us. This is the kind of people that make up the bride of Christ. The bridegroom met this woman at the well. And we need to be a kind of church that celebrates the power of the gospel to reach and transform lives for his glory. So just like some people might be here, might be feeling a little bit uncomfortable, a little bit exposed. I mean, Jesus just out of nowhere recounts her entire marital history. So she's pretty eager to change the subject, right? So in verse 19, the woman said to her, Sir... I perceive that you're a prophet. 
Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to. It's getting too personal for her. Do you ever find this? You're, you're trying to talk to someone about, about religion or about what it means to have a relationship with God, and they're kind of you start talking about them and their own sin, and they want to change. Well, how come there's so many denominations in the church? I mean, uh, what, 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 about, what about the Dark Ages? What about the Crusades? What about the theory of evolution? Let, let's talk about politics. All of that is just a smokescreen. I don't want to talk about my sin and my issues. Let's debate some of these, some of these other issues. And Jesus said to her, verse 21, Woman, again, this isn't disrespectful. That's the way he spoke to his own mother. Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. So, you know, Genesis chapter 12, all nations of the world will be blessed through Abraham, through the salvation is from the Jews. She, she's concerned about this mountain. The mountain would have been right in the, you know, right in the, in the backdrop of this conversation. The wells there and then Mount Gerizim would, would, would be in that general area. Mount Gerizim was the first place that Abraham built an altar to worship God when he first moved to the promised land. So it's a very important, very important place. Mount Gerizim is also the place, you know, when they, people enter the promised land and, and they, they, they have a... Um, a, 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 a blessing declared. Some people go up on one mountain. Some people go up on, a, a, on another mountain. And they're supposed to pronounce a curse on the one mountain and a blessing on the other. The, the, the mountain that was supposed to be the blessed mountain is Mount Gerizim. Now the people of Samaria, they worshipped on this mountain. That's what she says. They only believed in the first five books of the Old Testament. They probably didn't like the way they were described in First and Second Kings, right? <laughs> Like revisionist history. Let's just cut that part out. And so they focused a lot on Mount Gerizim. In 400 BC, they built a temple there. And then in 110 BC, a Jewish high priest named John Hyrcanus and a bunch of mercenary Jewish soldiers stormed Samaria and tore their temple down. You can see why Jews and Samaritans did not get along. Notice how she says, past tense, our fathers were shipped on this mountain until you tore our temple down. But Jesus, notice how in, in verse 21 and in verse 23, just says the hour is coming. The hour is coming. This concept of the hour was introduced back in John chapter 2 at the wedding of Cana when Mary is like, you know, solve the wine problem. And Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. And then Jesus keeps talking about the hour that's coming. And it ultimately climaxes in John chapter 12 when Jesus is about to go to the cross. The hour is when Jesus goes to the cross. Jesus says, the hour is coming. It won't matter whether you're worshiping in a temple or on the mountain. Jesus says, when I go to the cross to suffer and die for our sin, when he goes to suffer and die for our sin, it will be irrelevant where we worship. Jesus is going to replace the temple. I mean, John chapter 1, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled among us. That's temple language. John chapter 2, tear down this temple. I'll rebuild it in three days. Jesus was going to replace the temple. Worship was going to be decentralized. He says, the hour is coming in verse 23. 
The hour is coming and it's now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is seeking such people to worship him. The conversation started with what every human being is seeking, water. And now we're told what God is seeking, worship. Worship in spirit and in truth. Now so often the way John writes is he introduces a concept like the hour. And then he doesn't explain what that concept ultimately means until multiple chapters later. So now we're being told spirit and truth. you got to worship in spirit and truth. Well, how can we worship in spirit and truth? Well, spoiler alert, we're going to look a couple of chapters ahead. John chapter 7, Jesus said, on the, on the day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as of yet, the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus had not yet been glorified. So what is the living water? The living water is the Spirit. So Jesus comes to give us the living water to satisfy our thirst, and it's the Spirit that enables us to worship in spirit and in truth. But what about the truth part? Well, as we keep reading... We learn what John chapter 4 is talking about by looking at John chapter 15. Jesus says, when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. How do you worship in spirit and truth? You worship in spirit and truth by having access to the living water and the spirit who is the spirit of truth. It's the Holy Spirit who changes the whole dynamic of what it means to worship. It's no longer centered on a particular place. It's centered on who Jesus is and what he came to do. So when we get together to worship loved ones, this is a supernatural, glorious event that takes place. We shouldn't be standing around with hands in our pockets. No, we have been given the Spirit who's the living water. We have had our thirst satisfied. We should be singing. We should be raising our hands. We should be clapping. We should be worshiping with all that we have, allowing the Spirit to fill us. Because he is the, he is the one who enables us to worship in spirit and truth. Verse 24, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. You see, the woman, I think she thought she was changing the subject by moving from her sin to worship. But the truth is, that's not a change in subject. Because ultimately, every sin problem is actually a worship problem. Because... Christ came to give us the Spirit so that we can worship in spirit and truth. Because when we worship idols, we're not worshiping in spirit and in truth. We're worshiping in the flesh and in lies, aren't we? Spirit and truth or flesh and lies. Sexual sin, which is just so, so pervasive. Men and women, young and old. What, what is happening to us when we give in to sexual sin? Flesh, we have these impulses, these desires, these instincts. Flesh and lies. If I, if I look at this, if I sleep with this person, if I break this commandment, then I will feel good. Then I will feel fulfilled. Then I will feel satisfied. Flesh and lies work together and we worship the God of lust. You follow? 
But when we have the spirit and when we have the truth, we're no longer bossed around by our body. We have the spirit inside of us that leads us, that loves God, that wants to follow his ways. And we know the truth about what God teaches about sexuality and about marriage and about purity. And so we, we no longer worship according to flesh and lies. We worship according to spirit and truth. And th- listen, so worship is not just what happens here on, on Sunday morning. Worship is every decision we make every day of our lives. That we're no longer led by the passions and desires of our flesh. We're led by the spirit. We no longer fall by the deceptive lies of the enemy. No, we live by the truth. But that doesn't negate Sunday morning. Because all of that is true. Oh my goodness, this place should be erupting in song. Because we are worshipers of spirit and in truth. Jesus has not just changed our behavior. He's changed our very desires. That we want to do what is right. That we now worship according to spirit and in truth. The woman though, still not quite ready to take all of this in, she uses another tactic that so often people try to use to deflect out of spiritual conversations. Some of you here today are an expert of getting out of spiritual conversations. You're familiar with this technique. She says, verse 25, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he'll tell us all things. What's this? This is the agnostic trump card. Well, you know, you you Jewish people, you have your opinion, and we're the Samaritans over here, and we have our opinion, and no one really knows until the Messiah comes. How many times have you heard that? Oh, you believe what you believe, and I believe what I believe, and nobody really knows. Well, listen, Jesus doesn't allow for agnostics. Because he just says, listen, take it or leave it. It's written right here in black and white or red and white, depending on the edition of the Bible you have. Verse 26, I who speak to you am he. So Jesus doesn't say, this isn't something you can put off till later. Jesus forces every single human being on planet earth. They must make a decision about who Jesus is. And you have to take Jesus seriously because he said it right here. I am the Christ. I am the one who has come to save us from our sins. That came out wrong. It sounded like Jesus had sins. Jesus said, I am the one who came to save you from your sins. He says, I who speak to you am he. He satisfies our thirst. And he saves us from our sins. Don't, don't, dodge, don't dodge the question. Don't allow people to dodge the question. How are you going to respond to the things that Jesus said about himself? This isn't something that can be deferred later. Jesus says he is the Messiah. So he satisfies us. He saves us. And then lastly, Jesus sends us. He sends us into our world Verse 27, just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? The disciples, they were already playing a different kind of a game. Like a lot of people would have avoided Samaria altogether, but Jesus went right through it with his disciples. He had already trained them to think rightly of of human beings as image bearers, that they went into town, into a Samaritan town to buy food. Some uh, conservative Jews never would have done that. But it's the whole idea that Jesus is talking to a woman right now that really that really threw them because of the culture at the time verse 28 so the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people come see a man who told me all that I ever did can this be the Christ they they went out of the town and were coming to him 
Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that, that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought, brought him something uh, to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus is just always turning things around, right? I'm talking about water, I'm talking about a different kind of water. You want to talk about food, I'm talking about a different kind of food. He says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. Listen, there's nothing that satisfies us like obedience to God's will. It's like eating a, just a good home-cooked meal, you know, loosen the belt, sit on the couch. You are full. You have everything you need. That feeling comes when the Christian lives in obedience to God's will. Then he gives them, he gives them these two sort of idioms, these colloquial uh, sayings that they would have used all of the time. He says in verse 35, do you not say, so this is a common phrase, there are yet four months and then comes the harvest. And, and that, that idiom is like, you know what? It takes time. You got to plant. Then you got to wait four months before you really see anything growing. Before you can experience the harvest. But then he says, look, I tell you, lift up your eyes the, the, and see the fields are white for the harvest. He says, we don't have to wait. As soon as the seed is being planted, it's growing up quick. It's ready for the harvest. These people are ready to become Christians. Verse 36, already one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together as soon as the seed is being planted. I mean, the reaper's right there. It's all happening. But then in verse 37, he says, for here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. And so that's, a, that's a, a, another parable, another idiom saying that, you know what, sometimes it does take a long time. Sometimes one person sows, but then they're not even around for the harvest. It takes so long for the, for the plants to grow. Jesus says in verse 38, I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Jesus says, you guys as disciples, this is all of this. The John the Baptist ministry and Isaiah's ministry and the other prophets ministry. We are just reaping Based on what they have sowed. Listen, we, we shouldn't be patting ourselves on the back here as a church. So much of what's happening here is we are just reaping what other Christians have sown in this community for years and years. So Jesus uses these two sayings. One saying, he sort of contradicts. He says, no, it's, it, it can happen right now. Another saying is, no, 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 no. The reaping comes much later. But listen, sometimes in evangelism we see, we see fruit right away. Sometimes it takes a lot longer. Sometimes we get to see the fruit. Sometimes someone else will see the fruit. But here's the thing that's common. Jesus seems to be contradicting himself. Here's the thing that's common. God is always working. And evangelism is always worth it. And God's word is never wasted. And so that we should be giving. Giving with expectation as we give the gospel to other people. That they will respond. But also being filled with hope. Even if they don't respond in the moment. That maybe someone else will reap what you have sowed. Verse 39, many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed, notice this, the Savior of the world. 
The Samaritans were the first ones to recognize that Jesus is the Savior of the world. Samaria is so crucial. Acts 1.8, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. It was the Samaritans who said, this is going to go to the world, to the ends of the earth. And God, through Christ, sends us into the world, gives us the water to go to thirsty people and say, here, this is what will satisfy you. Ten years ago, our church was, was sent out from Harvest Bible Chapel in Oakville. And there's a number of people who are here today. And you, were, you came here. You were called. You were sent. We started out uh, in uh, Brampton. And then when we, when we acquired this property, Harvest Oakville again sent more people to say, hey, some of you need to come and, and help out this church to preach the gospel in this area. God is always Sending, and then we get the great privilege, don't we? We're, we're helping to plant Hope Church Toronto North. We are sowing, we are planting a church plant. And there are a group of people who are feeling the call. They are being sent by God to go help that church get off the ground. Some people are they're, they're, they're just they're going for a short period of time. Other people are committed. This is going to be their home church in the long Term. This is going to be where they are going to call their church home. And I want to just want to take a moment, as in the season of sending where we are, if you are being called right now to be a part of Hope Church Toronto North, if you're part of that core group, I want to invite you to stand right now so we can recognize you. So just stand up. If you're part of Hope Church Toronto North, let's get on our feet. I know, I know you're out there. There we go. Anthony's out there. Other people who are going to Hope Church Toronto North, there's about 40 or 50 people. Who are let, that's not loud enough. Let's celebrate this. Amen. And these people are sowing in hard ground. They need encouragement. They need affirmation. They need celebration as we are partnering with them. As God is sending us into the world, he's sending these people down the 401 to establish a new church in the Yorkdale region. They are going to spread the news that Jesus satisfies and that Jesus saves and that Jesus sends. Amen? Amen. Let's bow our heads together. Lord, we love you and we thank you, God, that you not only satisfy and save us, but that you want to send us so that other people can experience your satisfaction and your salvation. Lord, we love you and praise you that you are the kind of God who looks on, a, looks on someone like this woman from Samaria with love and, and, and that you have come to, to forgive us our sins, to die in our place. Lord, we love you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.